0: hello welcome to the ripple a podcast diving into closure programs and libraries this week I'm talking with Renzo Borgati, the author of closure the essential reference welcome to the show Renzo
1: Thank you Danielle thank you for having me
0: yeah this is I'm excited to talk to you and get the history of this book I first email I saw mentioning or referencing this closure the essential reference was back in 2015 yeah on a mailing list uh and i think people including possibly even me were sort of a little bit maybe sceptical. maybe the wrong word but everyone seemed to sort of think this was a an enormous task and
1: uh <laughs> yeah
0: nevertheless you went ahead with it do you want to tell us you know what's the history of this project
1: yeah yeah sure so as you said it's, it's six years now so it's a long time and I. When I started, uh, you know, I think the first estimate that I was uh, requested to give was in the in the ballpark of eight months or ten months. So now we can laugh out loud as much as we wanted that. Um, <laughs> through the history of the book, I kept like every once in a while giving estimates about when are you going to finish. The book and <laughs> continuing with the same kind of estimates. So why it took so long? Well, maybe let's start from the beginning. The idea from the book comes from like a few chats regarding a possible subject for a book. So I I wanted to write a book. I wanted to try the experience of being an author, writing down my experience or my thoughts. That was a, always attracting me as an idea. It still attracts me. It's, it's still like a, a pleasant experience to write a book. I took a chance, like I started thinking more seriously about writing it, when I received I think first um like an offer from Pact Publishing to write a book, but the subject was not necessarily closure, I don't remember. And then also another from Manning that was searching for a replacement author for another book about functional programming. I don't remember if it's grok in Functional Programming. It might be the modern one. There was another one. And I don't remember if it was finished or not at the end. So With uh, this couple of hints that somebody maybe was uh, in the need for a book, I decided to write one. And I had these three subjects. One was uh, writing something about the functions in the standard library. Mm -hmm. Another subject was functional refactoring, which is still like a fascinating subject. There's not a lot about it. And uh, another one was more like a basic introduction to Clojure, really from the functional programming concepts and building up into the language. And I discussed these topics on the juxta mailing list. The one that is, uh, there's a, Juxt is a company in the UK and they created this mailing list of friends as a social network for possible work or subjects, technical subjects to discuss. I posted like a first question about the three subjects there. After that discussion, I decided to go for something regarding the functions in the standard library. As of why this was one of the three topics, is because even before, like the idea of the book, I was posting regularly on my blog this Closure Weekly blog posts. That was the title, it's still the title. But now there's a more popular Closure Weekly, which is not what I used to write. And I was collecting links regarding Closure that I was learning at that point around the web. And uh, for each link, I was writing a, a little bit of um, abstract about the article, the summary what was the content of that link and why it was interesting. And uh, soon, at some point, one of those links started to be like a, a weekly recurring post about one of the functions on the standard library. From there came the idea maybe to collect all the posts related to the function the standard library into something bigger. And maybe I wasn't thinking about the book at that point. I was thinking about, you know, maybe an article or a series of articles, but then looking at how many functions there are, which is in the access of 700, I know there was material for the book, for sure. And also the other thing was how interesting and how many details each function in the standard library carries with them is not you know just the very short closure docs that is attached to each of them. They have uh, maybe some hidden parameter, they have some hidden behavior, hmm. not hidden, but perhaps not very well known. Even looking at the source code, you can understand that they might behave differently compared to what you expected, or they have some like a less known detail or function. So there was all an interesting journey uh, waiting ahead of me, and uh, that is the way it started. And then, as I said, it was very optimistic estimate of going through uh, the functions (laughs) very fast. And uh, it wasn't. And I mean, the reason why I went so slow is perhaps definitely my lack of organization. That's always probably one of the top reasons. But I found some difficulties and difficulties was to find the time to write the book. And of course, it was always working full time for the entire duration of writing the book. And then the obstacles were uh, mainly related to finding relevant examples for each function. That I think was the most difficult thing. In each function, takes a little bit of study, like uh, looking at the background of the function, what is the context where it's normally used, some classification grouping of where it should go, looking at the specification, what is the expected input, what is the expected output, and potential exceptions or errors or exceptional situations. And then trying to give a real world examples of real world connection to the way you would actually use this function in your normal work, in your normal application. And I found that very difficult at times, because in order to give a very meaningful example, you need to understand very carefully why the function is there why it is different from many other functions that on the surface look very similar. And indeed, there are instead some nuances, and they are different, and they are there for a reason. And sometimes tracking down this reason is a lot of work. And I found myself digging deep into the closure mailing list, the IRC channel, articles, like, you know, a lot of resources from early 2008, 2009, and understand why this function is in the standard library, why it was created, why it is there, why I should use it, then at that point, you can give also a meaningful example on the book. And hopefully, I was able to give a meaningful example on the book. So I'll, I'll stop there for a second and see if you have any questions or follow-up.
0: One thing I just want to add, on I guess is how large this book is it's the PDF is 1176 pages I mean technical books often are three or four hundred pages for you know closure yeah. closure technical books I've bought in the past you know this <laughs> blows right past them it's not that there's you know pages and pages of code samples you know it's mostly writing with some code sample examples but there's no filler here
1: yeah but, definitely there's definitely code but you know it's not Java. Not to talk bad words about Java, but it would be definitely like a 10,000 pages book. <laughs> <laughs> and so the examples are expressive, hopefully, and short. And uh, yes, and for each example, um, it's not just the example, but there are many notes about the mm. relevant lines, what you need to focus on for a specific example or snippet of code that you, you can see like a narrative that is taking you through an example and telling you this is why this was done and this is why this is here and so on and so forth. So yes, it's not it's not just code. And also one of the goals of the book since the beginning was not to make it a dry specification mm-hmm. of the language. I mean, with the Lisp, like closure is not easy necessarily to establish a specification because Part of the specification, if you want, is coming from the standard library, but at the same time, the core you know the special forms are just a few, so you can claim that the specification of the language is just given by the special forms, and then everything builds on top of that <laughs> but then, where is the line and I believe in the case of closure this i mean it would be very difficult to give an extensive uh, specification of the language, so it needs to be a little bit of prose, a narrative. And it needs to like tell a story. So I think the reason why it's also long, if you want, is that it shouldn't read like a dry specification. It should read easily. I hope it's uh, creating some curiosity to understand how things are working for that function in inside
0: Yeah. One other thing that I really appreciate about the book is performance notes. So notes about performance considerations and algorithmic complexity and even what's actually going on like, I'm just sort of picking at random here a sorted set. Mm-hmm. And it talks about the sorted set creates a closure lang persistent tree set, which is a wrapper around the persistent tree map. And this is the implementation. And it gives you not just like an understanding of how the code works, but what's actually going on underneath mm-hmm. and what's like the cost model that you should be thinking about when you're using these things, where the You've even got benchmarks and graphs and charts showing when you apply functions to different ty- kinds of collections or with different complexities of inputs or distributions of keys. Like it feels almost like if you had like a really good closure programmer as a like as a mentor, and they were just like, Look, we're gonna spend a year and I'm gonna take you through every part of the language and I'm gonna kinda tell you not just like what you can read in the docs, but what you should know that the docs aren't going to tell you.
1: Yeah, that was definitely one of the driving themes. And uh, performance was also probably just after finding the right examples was the section that sometimes required careful a lot of time to put together the charts or understanding the performance profile. And still probably don't claim that these performance profiles are perfect. I did the testing the best way I could to give justice and to make it replicable and like trying to avoid any like outside effects impacting on the performance results and so on. So I've used the mainly criterion to do all the benchmarks. And Mm -hmm. so, but even doing that, I believe sometimes there might be a few charts impacted by external factors The other complexity, I mean, we can call external factors also the fact that some functions are highly polymorphic and they have a a widely different behavior if they are used with a a type of data structures or another. And uh, and you can expect that. And the, the other, of course, the other parameter you need to consider is the size of the input that you are processing and the performance curve will change based on how big the sometimes will change depending on how big the size of the input is. Um, so with all these variables involved uh, in, in performance, it's quite difficult to give like a, a full picture of how a function is expected to behave. Of course, the big O notations should be accurate and should give you like a, a good idea, but sometimes even that is not necessarily true, right? Even the linear... Linearity enclosure is almost always a logarithmic curve in with base thirty two That's yeah. normally the case right there's no there are very few functions i mean very few sequence processing functions that are truly linear I'm not sure if there is any because all the data structures are are persistent and so they almost always go through the same process, meaning the big O notation will be the same logarithmic instead of linear, completely linear. And then, of course, there are some of them that are linear by nature when you have to traverse an entire sequence, for example. So performance, I think, is a very good uh, thing to have. And very often there are pieces of performance measurements related to a function that ends up very far away from the function and you need to dig deep into stack overflow or the mailing list to find out how you should treat a specific performance curve for a function. So, the idea with the book was also to aggregate all the possible information, all the possible relevant information about a function in a single place, which was one of the problem that sometimes I had as a closure developer was to find all the information I needed. And sometimes it was a long search to find them.
0: You've spent six years looking really really hard at the closure standard library and the closure project around it were there any surprising functions or things that you had just overlooked previously that you came across now that you were you know looking at everything with a fine-tooth comb that you thought huh i didn't realize that was even a thing like it was just completely out of the or perhaps something that maybe you knew about but you think that most people don't know about
1: So there is some interesting complexity in a few functions, but maybe by now they are a little bit more known to the large closure public. Uh, One was, or is seek like written S E Q U E. I think it's pronounced seek. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is an interesting function is like a sequential processing function is a sequence generator as it is classified in the book. And uh, uh you know it's similar to other sequence function but if you look inside you understand what the mechanism is is much more sophisticated it creates an essentially an in-memory queue during like sequential processing in order to decouple the way the sequence is produced from the way the sequence is consumed so it's a highly concurrent or thread-based functions that is quite complicated in nature, like it's, what it does, is quite complicated. But it's got this uh, very simple, very elegant uh, surface interface. We, you know, you just don't perceive the complexity that is going on underneath. And it's got like a couple of very narrow use cases. So I believe I never used. I probably used it once, and this the example that is uh, on the book. I've used it once for a sort of pagination. And uh, you can use Seek every time you have this discrepancy between the speed at which the sequence is produced and the speed at which it is consumed. And when you have this, you can have Seek essentially doing work in the background while you are, like, if you are a slow reader, you're doing your slow processing of the elements in the function, uh, sorry, elements in the sequence. And Seek is doing work for you in the background. So it's very sophisticated. And also understanding why it is in the standard library required me uh, quite a lot of digging. And uh, luckily, in this case, there was like a very useful discussion on the mailing list between Chris Hauser and uh, Richiki regarding this function. So I could understand the intricacies and the specification of this function. I understand why it is there and why it is useful. Because sometimes this seek function is mentioned as like one of the you know interesting or not well known functions in the standard library mm-hmm. but there are other things like that are probably known and there are validators and watchers that you can attach to most of the concurrency primitives in uh, in enclosure so you can have uh, validators and watching functions attached to an atom for example and every time you update the atom these validators for example, kicks in to understand if the atom can be abated or if the transaction can actually happen, and the watcher is similar. It just produces, you know, an event every time you update the atom, and it's a kind of a callback. And these, like set validator, add watch, are known, but are not particularly used, or maybe people don't know how to use them. Of course, they are. It's all related to the fact that you are making use of the concurrency primitives in closure, like uh, agent, atoms, or futures, and so on. So if you make a heavy use of them, you probably encountered adding watches or using validators, but maybe you didn't if you just use an atom every once in a while. So there are an entire group of functions that maybe are not well-known. And when I went there to understand how they work, I understood that they are quite sophisticated in the way they treat concurrency.
0: Yeah. It's interesting that they're also designed for VARs, VARs, AMS, agents, and refs for yeah. validators. I don't think I had ever come across maybe had in the past, but I don't remember ever seeing reference to using validation on a VAR when you're updating it. So it's
1: Yeah, it's it's not that common to see it in the in the wild, I agree. But you know, it's probably all part of the initial SDM software transactional memory design idea in Clojure. So it was probably all part of that side of the language. And uh, uh, by admission of rich himself in the, in his paper on the history of Clojure, he probably introduced uh, the STM and some of the very sophisticated concurrency primitives in Clojure as a way to promote a model of programming that didn't actually take off or it didn't become so popular maybe as it was expected, and it's a shame because you can cover a lot of use cases with the concurrency primitives that are in closure. And sometimes we reach directly for external libraries or other things. But maybe there will be an opportunity there to use the concurrency primitives without. I don't have like a specific case I can link. But I remember a few times having seen people reaching for CoraSync directly, thinking that is if there is concurrency involved, then I should use CoraSync. No other constraints, no other thinking behind that. And sometimes, you know, CoraSync is what you want, is what you need. It is a concurrency model, but is a specific one. And sometimes you could solve like uh, the same problem with uh, an easier solution, just using a future or an agent perhaps, or things that are in the standard library. So the fact that sometimes what is in the standard library is not, not well-documented or not known in the details is contributing to this factor of people reinventing the wheel sometimes, reinventing functions or macros when there are a couple of options already in the standard library. I've done that myself a few times, so
0: <laughs> it's a common case. Yeah. Do you have any favorite sections that you really enjoyed writing or researching?
1: So I think I enjoyed writing those sections where I had maybe just a superficial understanding or like I didn't have a lot of knowledge regarding them. And I think um, one of them could be uh, the one regarding types, classes and polymorphism in general. So the one that, the chapter that contains def record, extend, def multi, dev methods. So I've used Def record and I've used uh, multi-methods many times. Maybe I've I've also used um, RayFi and Proxy a few times as well. But there is this superficial use of uh, this construct to create these objects. And uh, I think there is much more if you dig deeper. For example, in the case of multi-methods, keywords can also be used to create hierarchies in Clojure. And since the dispatch of multi-methods is often based on keywords, then you can use the dispatch and the hierarchy capabilities of keywords to create very sophisticated hierarchies of multi-methods that are responding differently based on the type of the keyword, but they are responding differently in a way that is quite sophisticated. So, you know, with a parent-child relationship, and you can be quite selective in the way they react to different types of keywords and the way that these keywords are related to each other. I just wanted to mention when I talk about hierarchies and keywords, I'm talking about uh, things like uh, derive and make hierarchy, these kind of things. And uh, there is um, a paragraph or maybe we could call it a chapter dedicated to that, where you can see how you can create a, a hierarchy with keywords and use that. To drive the behavior of the methods in this like group of functions there's also parents ancestors descendants and everything that you need in order to traverse the hierarchy and understand where you are in this hierarchy of entities
0: that is something that i'm certainly aware of that the capabilities but i don't think i've ever really needed to go very deep at all into it but um yeah it's, it's a very powerful method
1: it's something that you might be curious at some point to understand what is available, how it works, and then you don't know exactly when and how you're going to use it in real life. Um, but as many other things, you keep it there in your memory. At some point, you're going to have this ha moment where you're pattern matching on this specific feature of closure and says, maybe, maybe that can help me. And and then at least you know where you're going, at least you know where you need to go. So. I think that would be one success of the book would be to um, like give uh, uh, a reader an opportunity to uh, do an indexing of the standard library and be ready, knowing where to go where the use case comes.
0: Yeah. Were there any parts that were under documented or that you kind of had to go on a bit of a journey to figure out what the, the use case?
1: Yes. Yes, there are. Now, I tried to remember a few examples, but. So there's a few examples in the documentation of dynamic variables. There are some of them that are almost completely undocumented. They remain public and they were made public for a reason. And then that reason got lost, essentially. So they were never used in the way they were supposed to be used. And I am just wanted to give you an example of what I'm thinking about when I yeah, where it's, for example, use context class loader. So there is a, a dynamic variable called uh, use context uh, class loader that you need to search with the double stars, the earmuffs around it. There are complicated reasons uh, that now maybe I, I don't want to necessarily go into, but they have to do with the way Clojure generate classes on the fly and the way these classes are loaded in a, inside a specific class loader of the hierarchy of possible class loaders that are available inside the JVM, inside Java. So this dynamic variable was created to allow you to control a little bit how and when Clojure was supposed to load your class in a specific class loader. And in this case, the context class loader. And all of this had to do with uh, uh, technologies that maybe now they are not so popular any longer. Maybe they are, but I don't hear about them any longer like OSGI, like the option for Java applications to hot reload entire uh, hierarchy of classes uh, without actually shutting down. And this is a use case and probably still in a few applications. And uh, Clojure was going toward this kind of use case with the use context class loader. And this is undocumented. So in order to understand what it does, I had to just dig into source code mainly and uh, and just figure it out what I figured out is that after a certain comment on master, it just stopped working completely. So it is there. There's a warning that's, that, that tells you the the reason why it is available, the reason why it was added, and the reason why it's not working any longer and you shouldn't use it. <laughs> right. And I'm thinking that probably are also functions that have a similar history, like defing line, for example. Mm. But that... Yeah, that's like another tricky one. It's uh, mainly a function for, actually it's a macro, I think. It's not a function. It's a macro that is useful only in case of Java interoperation. And it's only useful when you have a piece of Java that you're writing along with your closure application. And this piece of Java needs to be like it's got like many uh, function signatures with different types and different permutation of types. Native, and I'm talking about native types. And you want Clojure to select the right signature, the right combination of native types for the call you're doing and not having to incur any reflection penalty. And you can use Def inline for that. So it's got this very narrow, if you want, uh, use case. It's used internally inside Clojure, but externally, I think it only has this relevant use case, only if you're writing your own Java interoperation. And this Java interoperation has to do with a combination of native types. So if you have that numerical, mostly stuff, then def in line can still be useful. So it's not; it is documented, but I don't think it is a lot documented. And uh, it's tricky
0: anyway. So that's the docstring here says: experimental dash like def macro except defines a named function whose body is the expansion, calls to which may be expanded in line as if it were a macro, cannot be used with variadic args. Yeah. So you kind of like if you already know what all of those words mean and how they all kind of fit together, if you sit with that sentence for two sentences for kind of a few moments, you can kind of maybe get a a hazy picture of what it's doing and then you look at some examples and and things, but it doesn't really give you the same deep context and understanding and the why as what you just described.
1: Yeah, agreed. And the fact that it is marked experimental, of course, is also like a warning sign. The problem is that there are several experimental things in Clojure that have been experimental since day one I mean, this is one of them, but I believe there are a few others. And I'm not sure at which point we consider something not experimental anymore if it stays in closure for so long. So I guess by being experimental, it's just a warning for the user that says you should use it at your own risk. And if something doesn't work as expected, don't expect you know, you know the, the core team to jump on it and, and fix it straight away. But, yeah, at the same time, the fact that it has been in the standard library for so long, I think it deserves at least the documentation of what it does and what the limits are. At least, you know, if you have to avoid it or if you have to use it. Maybe uh, it might be useful to prevent somebody to use a def in line because maybe they think it is just doing an inlining of a function or something like that. Right. At least, you know, you don't.
0: Yeah. Maram's if uh, Hiram's Law, you know, we're doesn't matter what you promise in the contract. Eventually, all behaviors of the system are dependent on somebody. So I'm sure there's people depending on all the load-bearing parts of, of Clojure, whether whether they're marked experimental or not.
1: Right. I was thinking there are also... So many, uh, for example, there was a time, I think, when Clojure contrib. So there was an external library where people were experimenting with extending the language. And many of the things that were created inside closure contrib at some point were merged into the closure standard library many of them. like a few of the most important and many other like pieces of closure contribs are still alive in their own projects and uh, they are being developed independently i'm saying this because many of the features that were introduced as part of this migration from closure contrib they have a lot of knobs and parameters and configuration that are not maybe very well known maybe some of them are not relevant anymore so for example closure test the namespace closure test can also emit reports of running the tests in other formats that are not the one that you see on the screen so it can emit formats that are compatible with junit for example so not that anyone has ever used this, but it's got a lot of this. Um, I mean, interesting features that you need to dig a little bit deeper to understand what they are, how they are used, and so on. And another one that I found really useful, for example, in closure test, is that you can define your own. I don't remember the name how they are called, but your own assertion syntax. So you know that there are keywords in closure test such as is or are, and you can use them or thrown. That you can use them to test things if there are is equal three to three, and that will return true, and so on. And you can extend this syntax with uh, your own assertion words or assertion keywords. I've done that a couple times because in,
0: those are those are multi methods. Yeah. yeah, like they're throwing and instance and is uh, they're not functions, but you know just
1: yeah yeah
0: yeah sorry absolutely yeah they. Yeah, it's uh, slightly surprising. The way the code reads, you wouldn't necessarily expect the the implementation that does exist.
1: Yeah, correct. So I found it quite useful in a couple of times. For example, I uh, created a a new assertion called same question mark. Hmm. It's doing uh, like in in a couple of projects and this same essential is doing a more specific diff between the actual and the expected value. And it's making a, a, like a visual formatting of where the diffs are. So it's not just telling you uh, this is different from the other and you see this wall of text, but it's also showing you where the differences are. And I've done that through this, like just creating a new assertion. And yes, as you said, it's, uh, I think, a multi-method. The only thing that needs to happen is you need a hook into the testing environment where you load your definitions, so they are available from that point onward. That's the only thing that needs to happen. You need to require them. But after you've done that, you can create an entire library of this uh, you know, assertion syntax with your own. Uh, another one I, I remember I created is uh, uh, an equal for double with precision, where I can assert <laughs> what, is the, what is the confidence. So is this value equals to another with uh, confidence uh, 0.5%? for example, something like that. So these sorts of things are present in other testing frameworks and you can actually have them in your test too, if you extend it.
0: Mm-hmm. So this book is 1200 pages, almost 300 uh, footnotes. How did you write it? Like f- technically what was the tool chain and you know, how did you keep track of such a large yeah. volume of work? Uh,
1: luckily, you know, I don't know other editors, but Manning allows you, I mean, or like is suggesting you either to write it in Word as a Word document mm-hmm. or ASCII doc. And I never thought about like writing anything in Word because I had a very bad experience writing larger documents with Word. And I wouldn't be able to, I think. I think I wrote my master thesis in Word and I think that was when I said never again. And uh, ASCII doc is instead like a very pleasant experience to write a book into, it's very powerful. It's got all the possible formatting and uh, uh, things that you can think of in a very well-published book, including creating the table of contents, like a specific treatment for appendix, indexes, and stuff like that, and also for like writing code with uh, annotations. And all of this is available to you with... Uh, an easy syntax that it, it's like a markdown. It's essentially just a little bit more expressive or complete than markdown, but not that much more. So it's the same the same kind of simplicity. And it's not Latex, which, I mean, I don't have anything against it, but that requires a learning curve. And uh, I'm not sure I would, be, I mean, I would probably be able to write a book in Latex with some effort, I'm pretty sure. But ASCII doc is definitely, has got, like a very easy learning curve and uh, entry-level. And it's got good tooling as well, so you can download ASCII doc publishing chains that you can install locally to render your ASCII doc documented into HTML or PDF, and they're quite easy to use. So definitely recommended. and if I wanted to write another book, I would definitely go again with uh, Asciidoc.
0: doc. Did you... Tie together, maybe this is a bit overkill, but how far down the publishing chain did things like your performance charts and calculations and like, was there any sort of dynamic evaluation of closure code as part of compiling the book? Or was that kind of offline and then copied in?
1: Yeah, no, it's not exactly online with the book in the sense that when I publish the book, it's not generating the graphs. The graphs were generated offline, for example. I don't think there is a specific support inside ASCII doc to create like drawings or anything more than just syntax highlightings and code. So those are automated. So in a sense, the, the, the creation, the generation of the charts, I can regenerate them. So, but it's all like closure code that I wrote along with the book that is part of the project, but I need to run individually. Same goes for, I have um, a GitHub project in my name, github.com slash reborg. Mm-hmm. It's still called the Closure Stanton Library because it changed title. And in this project, there is the generation of all the snippets that are inside the book. And this is public, so it's outside the book, but it's public. In order to do the generation, I'm doing parsing of ASCII doc with some Closure code and uh, emitting the snippets chapter by chapter with some sequential numbering. And uh, so if anyone is interested in not copy-pasting essentially from the book, but looking at the code directly in their editors, is also possible by loading the project with all the snippets. So that is also like an offline operation, but uh, it's just a common line away if I need to generate the snippets again.
0: Right. I imagine that's going to be quite handy for copying text out of PDFs is- Fraught at the best of times, and then
1: yeah, from from PDFs, yes, I agree, it's not necessarily a good experience,
0: especially for source code. Yeah, that can be pretty tough. So, you yeah, had this project going on with Manning, and what was the editing process like? You know, how did they what kind of feedback did they give you? I know oftentimes other people will get approached to sort of preview the book and review or give technical feedback.
1: Yeah, they have a quite good process, I think. They assign you a technical editor, and you interface mainly with this person, and they give you feedback as well, but they are not necessarily technical to the level that they can you know, understand completely the content of the book. So there is also another technical editor, and now probably I'm not calling them with the right title because I don't remember. That is, um, in my case, it was Alex Ottinger, if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. And Alex is also, I think, the maintainer of Planet Closure and uh, probably a few other projects as well. I think he was very kind in reading the book top to bottom. And he found a lot of problems and also raised interesting thoughts. And uh, I almost incorporated 90% of all the feedback I received from him. So this was probably one of the most important feedback. And uh, this person is essentially an employee or a contractor of Manning. So I guess Alex gets paid somehow, probably maybe just in receiving copies of the book. I'm not sure what uh, what is the way uh, Manning <laughs> approaches uh, technical editor's. And um, this is not the only way Manning gives you feedback. It also regularly circulates the content of the book to like a close or like a restricted group of um, people from the community that, from my point of view, they are anonymous. So I don't know exactly who they are, but some of them are really good. So I suppose they are known and names. And they received a copy of the book and they're asked to read it and to give feedback and they have to reply to a series of questions. And also some of these feedbacks that I received, let's say every, I think we, we did three cycles of this and each time I received between eight and 12 replies or like full feedback. And some of them were really good and they spotted quite a lot of problems or code that wasn't working and so on. And the other thing is that the book is online. So it's a live book from Manning, so you can access it online. And there is a way for readers online to report feedback or any problem they found. And quite a lot of feedback came also through that, especially, you know, small syntax problems or like a code that was not displaying correctly. And uh, most of the fixes are coming also from that channel as well. So some of the fixes are coming from that too. Maybe I tested Manning on a somewhat new project for them. A book of this size, they never I don't think they ever had anything like with this amount of pages. So they are a little bit on the fence in terms of um, how to print this thing. <laughs> um, yeah, because it might. Have been... <laughs> and I don't know exactly how they're going to do it. It might be like a large thing, a large and heavy book. The other thing is this book. Maybe there are others now, but it was, I think, one of the first that was hinting at the problem of how to keep up with the language changes. So the mm. this is a specification, right? So it's most it should be more subject to language changes than I don't know other kind of books. They are maybe explaining principles. The principle might stay the same for a long time, but the specification of the function of the standard library might change. And indeed, this book is only a quote-unquote 1.8, closure 1.8. So there's a bunch of things in 1.9, 10, and 11 that are not in the book, or maybe they're just uh, mentioned in the book briefly. Hmm. So what do we do, right? You can go with the classic, the standard way of creating new editions of the book that are integrating the new parts of the language. But Manning is also thinking about making like a very prominent, the fact that this should be perhaps an online only book and uh, you and myself, I can keep working on updating the book with the new functions that are coming out and people can get them straight away as soon as they arrive. So now we are closing the book on 1.8 and I want to arrive at the point where we remove the early access label from it. Then I think there is room for me to work on the additions that are coming in the later versions of closure. So speaking of uh, removing the early access, so I want to reassure the like people listening to the podcast that the book is finished, this content complete. There are really minor things I'm tweaking in the preface, in the introduction, just to make it you know appealing in the very first pages. But is content complete, and uh, it should be out soon without the the early access label. And I'm meeting with Manning tomorrow, actually, like in two days, to discuss like okay. producing the final output. And then, uh, yeah, unfortunately, I don't have like the very latest news because this meeting has not happened yet. But there might be, you know, a date when the book will be available on Amazon or other channels as well, not just the Manning website.
0: Yeah, a twelve hundred page PDF. If you were to turn that into book-sized pages, books are probably smaller often than a PDF. So, yeah, it would be even more than twelve hundred pages fully printed, which
1: yeah, I am not be. sure. It might be volume one, volume two. Or... <laughs>
0: <laughs> I like am I'm just art. imagining like a wall, a wall full of volumes of this uh, tome.
1: Yeah, like that would be K3. nice. The art, the art of closure programming. Volume 1, 2, and, you know, in, in my dreams, if I had, you know, infinite amount of time, I would really love to tackle closure spec, core logic, and other important pieces of closure that are not necessarily inside the standard library, but they are like integral part of everyday programming, core sync as well. You know, those are books on their own, right? They cannot be inside the same book because they are so large, they represent like another, a similar monumental amount of work to, I think, to get them done using the same pattern I use for this book. But it would be nice. It would be
0: really nice. I agree. I mean, there's, there's lots of different, you know, documentation and courses and things out there. But something of this, of your level of comprehensiveness would be pretty cool, I think. So are there any interesting quirky parts of the closure language that you came across doing your deep research here?
1: So you're talking not about implementation, but more about the, the surface language?
0: Maybe both, but... Um...
1: Well, it might go under different definitions, depending on who you ask, but you can call them inconsistencies, or you can call them garbage in, garbage out. So closure is a pragmatic language. So it's done for you to make you productive and effective. And with this in mind, there are trade-offs, and one of the trade-offs that was taken in the design of of closure was that uh, there are some like rough edges, some rough corner cases. If you could, uh, you know, use maybe generative testing, like uh, for all the functions in the standard library, you would find like interesting cases where they don't work, they work, but they shouldn't and uh, there are a few examples in the book and the, there are warnings about why you shouldn't use these functions in a way or another so one example of that is a closure set where functions are happily accepting almost any kind of closure collection not just sets but in theory you should if you do a union or if you do an intersection you are talking about sets and you should probably give this function sets in input but Sometimes they work with something that are not sets. They work with vectors, but that is a mistake. The reasoning is here is that you should be consistent. You should be disciplined and pass. Be sure that you're only passing sets to this function if you don't want surprises. And the surprises are like are there if you pass a vector as the first argument, maybe it goes well, but if you pass it as the second argument, is not working and it's not throwing an exception. It's just returning garbage. So that's why sometimes they're called garbage in, garbage out. The problem is that this, you know, the rules for the garbage in, garbage out are not explicit. So they are probably explicit in the doc string, but they are quite terse. And it's easy to like to fall into the trap and not realizing that you're passing the wrong type to the function when you shouldn't. I mean, Clojure is full of these warnings and the mailing list is also full of people You know, sometimes getting surprised with, uh, oh, why this is returning this? And normally, like very, many times, the the answer is, you should have read carefully the doc string, and uh, that is something you shouldn't do.
0: Hmm. So the other thing that you're involved in is the Reclosure Conference. Yeah. And I'm assuming this is is partly named after yourself, you know, your online handlers, Reborg.
1: Interesting. No, no. I, it's the first time that I hear. No, no, it wasn't named by me. It was named by somebody else, by David.
0: Oh, really? Okay.
1: Uh, yeah, and so the inspiration came from essentially uh, re-proposing. So that's the re at the beginning, so representing like a London-based closure conference after that Closure X. So the closure exchange that was the, conference, the London-based conference right. at the time yes. went yep. bust uh, along mm. with uh, uh, Skills Matter. So Skills Matter is this, like they are in the learning business and they, they teach courses, they have like a large organization, but they went bankrupt, I think. Uh, in, they went into administration that I think is the correct terminology at some point in
0: 2019. 19. Yeah, December.
1: Yeah, at the time they went past, they already organized the closure exchange. So speakers were on the schedule. People uh, bought tickets, and uh, the the tickets were like well, they were not cheap. Like they were in the order of I think six hundred per day, so twelve hundred or I don't remember the price, but it wasn't necessarily a cheap conference. So, a few people in the closure community decided to do something about it. There was this uh, like uh, urgent, savage operation to rescue the closure exchange. That was done, you know, in 40 days or something. So, booking a venue, like alerting speakers, tell people to come, organize catering, and so on and so forth. Yeah, the normal things that you do for a conference. And I was involved at that point because I asked my employer to pay for the venue essentially to sponsor the conference and to keep it alive and they kindly accepted to do that and so we like a small group i think of four or five people were able to keep the conference alive make it free and make it successful i guess because i think many people any feedback that we received was very positive and so The next year, 2020, we decided to do it again, not let the conference die again. And uh, that is the year when the pandemic happened. And so we had also this interesting change from physical conference to virtual. Mm -hmm. We managed to organize another conference again, you know, again, with some restriction in terms of uh, having to urgently think about how to deal with a conference online in during pandemic days instead of you know going back to the same venue and do it again mm. so it was interesting and then i think now is probably alive as a conference every year and uh, we are going to have another one december 3rd and 4th and it was already announced and the and the website is uh, reclosure.org just in case you want to check it out interesting things about the conference this year is that we have uh, secured Gerald Sussman, keynoting. We might have another keynoter, but I can't at this moment, I can't confirm. So I um, hopefully will be out by the time the podcast is out. And we also have a few invited speakers that I can already mention. We have uh, Christoph Grand. We have Dragon Jurich of Neanderthal fame. We are also organizing quite a few of workshops with the Cycloge community. Great. So we had a very good experience with them during the past conference. They came for a talk and we were impressed by the level. I would say it was the amount of love they gave to the community through their talk. We were so impressed that we asked them to, is there a way we can collaborate? Is there a way we can do something together? Because it, I think they are like infusing a very positive feeling to the rest of us and probably is going to be the same for the conference for our, our audience so i think there is something to learn from them in terms of how they deal with the community and this year they are like helping us so we are collaborating if you want and uh, the collaboration is in the terms of they are preparing workshops ahead of the conference quite a few of them during the month of november and they are also preparing a few talks for the conference so yeah these are the highlights for the conference this year that I can disclose at the moment. I hope I, I'm gonna have more surprises in the
0: next weeks. All right. I also yeah, echo that I think Cycloge has been kind of this surprise it wasn't something I was expecting to see pop up, but it's been a you know consistently positive and vibrant part of the closure community. Absolutely. Doing all sorts of great things. So yeah, I'm, Yeah
1: I'm, And yeah, it just I just talked about the, the community engagement, but I should mention like, you know, the amount of effort, the, the amount of time they're putting into their goal and what they believe, like to make closure being a language that can compete with Python in the scientific community. So make it big again, because at some point a few years ago, we had the impression that we could compete with Python and then, you know, maybe abandoned the idea for some time but now they are pushing again, and I think is a very good commitment that they are having to push this part of closure forward for, like you know, scientific calculus, scientific
0: communities. Yeah, I agree. And the CFP is open until tenth of October. I don't know if this podcast is actually going to be out uh, in time for for anyone listening to get. Uh, oh, fine to get their CFP in. But hopefully, if you're listening to this uh, and you wanted to submit a CFP, you did. And are there any particular kinds of projects that you're looking for or sort of theme for the conference overall that you're trying to develop?
1: No, I mean, for the conference, we're trying to improve on a few aspects, like how to engage more during the break and poses that we have, how to engage more in general with a virtual community, with a virtual audience. How do we make them participants? So we are probably adding a gather app space this year. We think that, People will be able to join on the Zoom call for like live interaction and they can continue the interaction on their own on Gather. So they can form small groups, so they can interact with each other, or they can even comment like the live stream as it is streaming if they desire to do so. So they can self-organize a little bit. And the Gather Town is a nice space where you can organize online communities So I don't know if you ever had a look at that, but I was impressed to see. I mean, it's very simple. It's, uh, you know, Minecraft-like if you want, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't need to be more than that. It doesn't need to be 3D realistic. It's just okay to be simple and to just, yeah, support the community with a few features that are important. So we are thinking of using that space for additional live interaction, and that would be like a novelty in this edition of the conference. For the rest, no, I think we're trying to, you know, have a a nice interaction with the larger Closurians community. So this is mostly London-based, but it is now worldwide in the sense that everyone can access the meetups, everyone can access the conference. Most of us are, are London-based, but we don't want necessarily to give the impression that it is a London conference or a, a London meetups it's definitely be when we are going back to physical, but maybe we can, you know, travel across the UK at least Mm -hmm. and see how it goes.
0: seems like that's the only conference that's sort of currently upcoming. Is it? Is that your understanding?
1: Yeah. Now uh, that as we are talking, strange loop has just finished. Right. Of course. And I think that was uh, the only other big event that was going on. I think, Lambda Days is 2022, if I'm not wrong. So they are doing advertisement now, but it's going to be next year, not this year. We didn't have a lot of closure events. For example, there was no Conj that I know of. There was no Dutch Closure Days. There was Closure D. Yep. Uh, And I'm not sure there's going to be any Clojutre this year. Right. I I don't think.
0: Yeah,
1: So, yes, I mean, the, the, unfortunately, the pandemic has created a few problems for like events, organizers worldwide, and, yeah, closure Community is still alive. Some events are going on. We are probably all seeing a few more meetups happening worldwide of people that are meeting virtually and uh, uploading their recordings up to YouTube. So that is something welcome,
0: I think. Yeah, I agree. I'm not sure when, <laughs> when things get back so international conferences where people are yeah. you know, traveling traveling around the world I'm looking
1: forward to join my next like uh, physical conference after like two years I guess so yeah I can I can I mean I'm pretty sure that the first ones that are going to be physical like in 2022 they're probably going to be heavily oversubscribed or I hope so like uh, many people would like the idea to go back joining together in person or at least I hope so
0: hmm Yeah, I I hope so too. Well, that is a hopeful note to end on. Thank you so much, Renzo, for writing this book that I think the closure community is going to benefit from immensely. I would encourage people to go and purchase the book. Manning has given us a discount code for that. It'll be in the show notes, so you can use that link to purchase the book with a discount code and pick up the book both to boost your own Knowledge and also support Renzo, who's done you know, an incredible amount of work to do this archaeology and pull together an outstanding piece of work. So thank you for everything you've done in all the aspects of the closure community you've contributed to, and I will be keenly waiting for the closure spec uh, book coming up very soon. I'm sure.
1: <laughs> My pleasure, Daniel. It was a pleasure being guest of the podcast. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you everyone for listening.